1: Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Sadie, one of
2: your hosts today. And I'm Riley, another one of your hosts today. Hi, I'm Karen.
3: I'm Sashiella. You might recognize my voice from the previous episode as an author. I'm looking forward to coming on board as a host as well. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah, excited for the sixth episode of the fourth season entitled Fool Me Twice. I'm Rebecca also one of your
4: hosts today. In this episode, we hear two stories in which authors contemplate second chances, in which the authors wonder if fool me once makes fool me twice
1: inevitable. And I'm Deja. Let's get into these stories. This piece is by a returning author to Life Out Loud, Dylan Yepes.
4: Dylan Yepes is a senior at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, majoring in criminal justice and English. He's both interested in attending law school and script writing after he graduates from John Jay. During his free time, he loves to skateboard next to cabs in the city streets, watch as many films as he can, pet puppies with his girlfriend at a pet shop in Chelsea, and overall, spend time with his close ones. What gives Dylan the most joy is helping those who've lost hope in life find that hope again.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. Let's take a listen to Dylan's piece entitled, Daryl Simon, Just an Illusion.
5: 2006 was a strange time. It seemed like the whole country was still trying to recover from 9-11, which I didn't even understand that well at the time. All the hows and the whys that arose over time were just so confusing. My childhood idol, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, died that year, and I couldn't fathom that either. All at the same time, there was this man who entered my life, who entered my mother's life. I couldn't understand him, but I remember him. My mother will remember him forever. After a long day of work, dark circles around her eyes, and an exhaustion that could be felt from the sighs that leave her body through her breath, she's ready to tell me all about Justin Luzian, as if she's been waiting her whole life to tell me all about this man. His name's Daryl Simmons. We met at a halfway house where we both were under supervision. My mother served some time for mistakes she made with the wrong crowd of people and got thrown under the bus by her friends. She had to spend at least one year in prison when I was five years old. He would always come up to me to talk my mom told me. He'd say some of the most charming things that I fell for like a 16-year-old girl when I was a 32-year-old woman. You're the most gorgeous woman I've ever seen in my life, and I think I would do anything to at least take you out for dinner one night, just one night. I don't even think it was the way he said it, my mom confessed. I think it was the way he looked at me when he said it. He had these big green eyes instead 6 6'2 looking down at me. And his smile was so charming, so bright. He was tall, tan, and handsome. He knew he had me. I said yes. Darryl always had a plan for everything, she continues as she talks about him to me. He wanted to take me out when we were still at the halfway house and couldn't leave. He would sneak down from the floor where men stayed to the women's floor through the fire escape, which was a major rule not to be broken already, as all the men were separated from the women. He came and knocked on my window and said, get ready to go on that date. My mother slightly laughs, and her once-weary dull face brightens up a little, remembering this moment. She looks at me, but isn't really looking at me. It's as if she's looking at Daryl that one night, who was on the fire escape ready to help her live her teenage dream. He was so crazy, she says. He called his friend from the outside to pick us up in a car. And we never really went to dinner. We just rode through the city listening to the radio all night. Felt good to have that freedom. And the whole night, my heart was racing because we really broke out of the halfway house. If we got caught, we could have gotten more prison time. Daryl knew how to win anyone over. My mom continues and says, When we finally got out of the halfway house, we had to look for jobs. Daryl already had a job ready for him at Wall Street. I remember he had his own office and everything. I don't know how he got that job because he only completed two years of community college. He just had a way of talking to people could get whatever he wanted. That's why it didn't make sense for him to do what he did. <sighs> Daryl would use his charm on me, too. He was a magician who went by Justin illusion, when he would perform magic in NYC. And as a nine-year-old kid, I loved magic. I don't know if he would do all this to win my mother over. I don't think he had to, because he already did. I think he just wanted to win me over, too. He would always take me to his magic shows, and all the other kids would be jealous because I actually knew him. He'd also take me to Dave Buster's in Times Square where we'd bond like father and son over arcade games as my mom would watch smiling and laughing. Now that I look back at it, I was falling for him too. One day I told my mother that I wanted to have a shaved head like Daryl's because he looked so good with it. She had to talk me out of it and we fought about it in the barber shop. She said it wouldn't look how it looked on Daryl and showed me a kid who looked similar to me and had a shaved head. She was right. I'm glad she talked me out of it. <sighs> As she continues telling me more about Daryl, my mother's face starts to turn dull and weary again as she wanders off into her darkest memories of him. He was a womanizer. He had so many women under his spell. I even found out that when he was in prison, he impregnated the prison guard who was in charge of him. He'd always lie to me and make me feel like I was the one who was at fault, as if I was the one who was cheating. He would make me feel like I was crazy. His words were like poison. He'd tell me that I needed help and that he wanted to marry me but couldn't because I wasn't in the right state of mind. Since I'd always call him out on his bullshit. (sighs) When I was a kid, I remembered my mother driving us to his place one early morning. I was half asleep on the way there, and when we finally got there, she told me to stay in the car. About an hour and a half later, she came back with tears running down her cheek. I didn't know what to do. I never knew my mom could cry. She never did. She was my hero. Sometimes, I had to be hers. I hugged her, and she cried on my small shoulders. I told her it would be okay because that's what she always told me. (sighs) I was under his spell, she sighs, and it's as if all the weight of the world is coming back on her shoulders. She seems to choke on her words a little. She wants to release it all, but somehow it's stuck in her throat, or maybe in her heart. I thought I could be with him. I couldn't. He was manipulative, and he wanted everything his way. He would never let me question him, and he would make me think that I was the one who was crazy, like I was the one who needed help. But at the same time, I just couldn't leave him. I was so in love with him. Love hurts. Hurt the day he finally got caught too. Both my mom and him got caught. Daryl was a con artist. He would steal people's identities and drive all over the country purchasing things under other people's social security numbers. He would oppose as a friend to a lot of the people he stole from because he knew how to win anyone over he would find a way to get a credit card printer that only banks are authorized to have and print cards in his apartment. He dragged my mother into this lifestyle, and together, they became Bonnie and Clyde. Daryl would give me fake IDs to match the credit cards that were under someone else's name, my mom admits. When I'd go into the store ready to make purchases with these cards, he would prep me. Okay, babe, first thing you have to do is remember where all the exits are in case you have to run for it. If you ever do have to run for it, make sure you get your ID back because it has your face on it. That's the most important thing to remember. We can't leave any evidence. He would teach me how to sweet-talk the employees to make them feel comfortable and not suspect anything of me. I still use his sweet-talk method till this day. I get my way most of the time when I do. (sighs) My mother got caught with him when they were doing one of these runs that day, but luckily she was in the car waiting while it was his turn to do one. They couldn't catch her in the act like they caught him, they could prove that she helped him, more or less. Daryl would desperately try to throw all the blame on my mother. My mother got charged as a minor accomplice, but it was still a felony charge. She testified against him and was only sentenced to two years in prison, but only served a year due to good behavior. stayed with my grandma during this time. After my mother got out, Daryl still had trials because he was appealing a lot of the court's decisions. At the same time, some decisions were still in the process of being made. He had many charges, charges that my mom didn't even know he could have. Surprisingly enough, my mother still visited him and went to all his trials. (sighs) Before he was sentenced, she sighs, he wanted to marry me. But I knew it was that so he could have control of me, even from jail. What the hell do I look like getting married in a prison to a prisoner? I think he really was insane. Daryl was sentenced to 24 years in prison submitted Photoshop pictures of himself doing charity work to the judge in charge of his case wasn't his best work and the judge gave him an additional two years for obstruction of justice this was his last magic trick the new york post called daryl the good scammeritan in a very short article from 2010 they wrote about this incredibly stupid attempt to trick a judge of the federal court Daryl Simon's bald face moved included sticking a picture of himself into a shot with a physical therapy patient, then flipping the image and placing it next to a teen student. Evidence that his image was inserted and flipped can be seen by examining the single detail on his shirt above his fingers. That detail appears on the left side of his shirt in the top photograph, and on the right side of his shirt in the bottom photograph, prosecutors wrote. On the legal forum website, they wrote about this as well, and they pretty much reiterated what the New York Post had already reported on. But what's interesting is the comment section at the very end of the page. Here, many different women Daryl's been with speak about their experiences through their comments written in 2010. (sighs) One still seemed to be under Daryl's spell. Carla says, My name is Carla and I used to see Justin Daryl in Vegas and I thought he was a wonderful guy. If any of you know how I can let him know that he can write me if he wants, my office number is 702-496-3627. I'm not sure what he's in trouble for. I just Googled him tonight. (sighs) Another seemed to be slowly moving on as she reminisced about old times with Daryl. Penny Lehman says, I wish him well, and for whatever it's worth, I did love the real Daryl. The man I met in the Florida airport, wrestled for a Rubik's Cube, got caught in the Portland rain, got lost in a rental car that had GPS in Minnesota, brushed sand from his feet after wading the water at the beach. The man that got jealous because Frenchie was flirting with me. The man that played rock band with my son. He had some really good times. And one seemed completely repulsed by Daryl and rejoiced now that he's imprisoned. Aaron says, Hi, I just have to say, two years ago, I was one of the victims in Daryl's fraud scheme. I've had to sacrifice a lot to get my life back in order for what he did to me. 24 years is a wonderful sentence. My mother... Well, my mother would find herself somewhere between Penny and Aaron. He still sends me letters, she says. I ignore them. <sighs> but somewhere deep inside, as I watch her honey brown eyes stare into the past, I know the spell she was once under is still deep inside, waiting to creep out if she's ever to let her guard down. If she ever gives in to those sealed letters, stored safely in her important belongings.
2: Oh my gosh. <gasps> wow. Okay, wow. So good. Ugh. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight.
4: And for sharing your story with us.
5: Yeah, no problem. I love being here. I loved it the last time. I'm looking forward to do it again, even after I'm done with this one. Uh, Aww. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh,
1: thank you so much for coming back and giving us another story. It, yeah. uh, that was, ooh, okay. All right. So in your opening paragraph, you mentioned how confusing the year 2006 was for you. You mentioned how your childhood idol, Steve Irwin, died and how you couldn't fathom his death. And it was also the year that Daryl Simon entered your life. Now, it kind of seems like on the heels of the death of your childhood hero came a brand new one to take his place. So can you expand on how much Daryl became a kind of father figure to you? Because you say he used his charms on me and wanted to win me over. So do you think he saw you as merely a tool to gain your mother's affections? Like how much, if any, was Daryl's kindness toward you real? And because you fell for him too, do you feel like his betrayal cut just as deeply as your
5: mother's? Wow. That, that's okay. So I have to cover <laughs> a lot of ground here. Um, So as a kid, even now, so I'm always kind of sort of looking for a father figure mm. in my professors and my male professors and kind of any male that enters my life and takes some sort of, I don't know, some kind of role in, in like, authority, mm-hmm. um, such as professors, mm-hmm. sometimes even doctors, sometimes other family members, um, and when I was a kid, I would look at Steve Irwin as a father, almost, like, through the TV, because <laughs> yeah. he just, he he had his own kids, and mm-hmm. he... He would have have his kids sometimes on the show and you know, they would pet animals together and I was just like, Wow, we're all in this together, we're all Mm -hmm. a whole family. I tune in every Wednesday night and I'm just I'm ready to watch him. And he died and I the way they broke the news for kids watching the show was I guess a- appropriate for kids, and mm-hmm. but you still knew what it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I I was sad. I wasn't deeply sad, but I was like, some part was just like, wow, what am I gonna do on Wednesday nights now? Like, right. you know, and I still think about him until this day, mm-hmm. and a lot of people do. I'm not alone on this. Yeah. I go on Twitter, and everyone's just following his kid, who's now sixteen or seventeen, and he ju- he looks just like his dad. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, when I have kids later on, I'm going to make them watch this kid because he's, he's following the, the role of his dad and he's also into animals and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. So Daryl did come to my life when I did need a father figure the most and he... He would take me out. He would, you know, as I said in the story, he would take me to Dave & Buster's. We would play arcade games. We would do this, this, and that. A lot of, you know, father-son bonding kind mm-hmm. of thing. He especially, the, I think the most that I loved about him was his magic. And he got me into magic. And he took me to his magic shows. His name was Justin Illusion, And he had, um, I don't know, I can't really remember. But it's somewhere near Times Square. There's this magic spot. And he had spots booked for him. And all the kids would love him. He, mm-hmm. he loved every kid that came to him. And he would, you know, all of them would sit on his lap. And he would just, you know, the, you know do the old magic card trick. I, I took pride in being able to walk out of that place with him. And mm-hmm. all the kids seeing me walk out with him. And my mom, wow. too. And yeah. we would just all yeah. then catch a bus together. And then, you know, then we'd do whatever it is we were going to do that day. He he was, he, he took The father figure kind of role but sometimes I don't know if it was to win me over my mom uh this isn't the story but my mom told me that he would teach her how to be more playful with me and because he genuinely loved children you know to play with them and you know he (laughs) he told my mom how to I guess be more playful with me that I shouldn't just be told to sit there all the time, that she should engage with me and that she should, you know, do this, this and that with me, go right. out and play basketball mm-hmm. with them. Yeah. And she took that advice. And uh, even after he left my life, she was still doing that. She would still take me to Dave and Buster's and even him, she she would try to take the role that he took mm-hmm. in my life to kind of, you know, make up for his absence because right. she knew that he <laughs> he, he he did not have an effect on me and he did kind of play the father role yeah it it hurt me a lot when when i found out that he was a criminal because you know when you're a kid you're told people who do these kinds of things are bad guys Mm -hmm. and you know you're you're thinking the guy i looked up to the most was a bad guy Mm -hmm. and he wasn't like steve Irwin. steve Irwin wasn't a bad guy yeah that, that, that that really hurt me the most and then when i a little bit older my mom got more into detail with it with what happened exactly and she told me that he tried to pin everything on her and that made me even more resentful of him and now I'm like in the state like I I still don't know what to think of him and I remember when I when everyone read my story the feedback that I got was that we, we don't know what to think of him He's a, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Right. And I, I don't even know that myself. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm. Yeah, I mean even now hearing you um, talk about him and and you're telling us about how he encouraged your mom to interact with you more to be more playful and even after he left your guys' lives, your mom still continued to take you to Dave and Buster's. It's like, it's it's so hard reading your story to imagine this kid, who. Was kind of getting his a little bit of his own Steve Irwin, who right. all the kids at the magic mm-hmm. show envied, and then you got to walk out with him, mm-hmm. and then he betrays you guys like this, but yet he did do the some good things. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's, it's complicated. Yeah. It's 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 really yeah. it's really complicated because he's not just the criminal you can label him as the criminal put him mm-hmm. in the box it's like right. all these other things yeah is, yeah, ah. yeah. <laughs> but i
4: think it's good to highlight the fact that like for example if like we saw that news article by itself we would think hey this guy is a terrible person mm-hmm. He's yeah. right. after all uh-huh. of these people he's just but like hearing it from the side of somebody mm-hmm. who actually i guess fell into his trap in a way mm-hmm. it's like yeah they could have their good aspects but they could also have their bad aspects and no one person is one or the other. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting, and it and it really shines a light on how black and white we can be sometimes right. when we get to see an actual story where we see a person who, yeah, theoretically, this person is terrible. But at the same time, they did so much good things for, like, a family or, or a number of families that you can't help but think, mm-hmm. is he, though?
2: Right. I was just going to say, like, sometimes things aren't always so black and white. So that was really interesting to see and and like we were just talking about and it just it sucks because you you really like looked up to him and he kind of became a, a part of you and then you know when somebody you look up to and you see that they do have these flaws or they can be bad people it kind of and especially as a kid kind of flips your whole world around and um kind of getting into that a little bit you mentioned in the story about your mom you said that she was my hero but sometimes i had to be hers and that was so heartbreaking Mm -hmm. (laughs) and as kids you know we're supposed to think that our parents are invincible but then here you are having to role reverse so do you feel that this relationship between your mom and daryl indirectly caused you to have to mature faster and be like the clear-sighted adult when your mom was blinded by love
5: yeah yeah it did it made me have to mature faster, and even I was still in the process of maturing faster because my mom already went to jail once. She's going again, and it's because of this guy. I just kind of had to learn how to deal with all of this. You know, she would always tell me it would be okay. After the first time, it was okay. So I thought, okay, it will be okay, and this is just the second time it'll be okay again. So I, yeah, I did have to mature faster, and I did have to... Be there for her because there was no one else there for her. She has no relationship with her parents. Her mother died when she was seventeen. Her father is a really bad person. There are a few things, a few good things you could say about him, um, from what I've been told by everyone in my family. So she's had a really rough life, and I don't judge her ever. And so she had no one, and so I, I, took on that role of you know, I guess being the person there to comfort comfort her, even though she knew that I couldn't really do much and I knew mm-hmm. I couldn't really do much, but <laughs> I'm there and it's like you yeah. see your dog after you've had a long day and you're just yeah. like, Come here <laughs> you know, and I was sort of like that dog. And she would just, you know, cry on my shoulder, and I would just say, it's okay, mommy, it's okay. Yeah, that was, like, pretty much my go-to line, it's just, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and that that, that scene in your story, when you guys made that late-night trip, and then she comes back, and she's crying, and then you say in your story about how your mom never cries, Mm -hmm. and then you have the line she was my hero but sometimes i had to be hers it's like that line right there it right. just like uh, cuts it, you right in the heart it, because <laughs> yeah, because mm-hmm. this is a kid this is you right. as a kid ex- like feeling this saying this and it's just like ugh. it's like you you encompass so much into yeah. those few words like they say so much you show don't tell
5: yeah i yeah. I, I really when i was writing that i I, like I pre- I cried like twice when I was writing that and I
1: know. I, it's like, yeah. at
5: that moment that was one of the moments when I cried like after that because it, it took me back to that memory and mm. yeah and they' with you yeah <laughs> yeah and I'm looking at this from an outside perspective like looking at it from above in my memory. It's just it, the first thing that came into my mind is that I had to be her hero and that's yeah. what it seemed like in that moment because I did get her to stop crying and mm-hmm. i did get her to think that mm-hmm. it was going to be okay yeah, yeah. And then yeah we drove yeah. away and then we got some ice cream
4: uh, <sighs> i mean i'm almost like that that's all that really matters right right, right. you get to be there for her even mm-hmm. if you don't have the right things to say exactly
5: i love the
2: the line i forget exactly what it was but you know you're like well i just told her that it was going to be okay because that's what she would always tell me and yeah. it's interesting because i think that we kind of pulled on to that concept in life and sometimes that's what i'm thinking too like at the end of the day what what can you say is it's gonna be okay is it
5: i don't know but (laughs) we can hope i
4: mean tomorrow's a new day
5: yeah yeah Yeah, we can only hope for the best it's gonna be okay
4: so going more into the structure of your story the way that you set up everything is so interesting it's like your mother sitting down with you telling the story of her relationship and we get to sit there with you and we hear these little vignettes of memories what made you decide to write your story like this? Is this actually how you interviewed your mom for the story?
5: Yes. This is actually how I interviewed my mom. I would do it over a span of three, four days. I would, I did the first part. She would just go on and on and on and on. I had to pull what I needed to pull from what she said. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, next day when you come back home from work. And I get, you know, I'm already there because I came back from school. We did that over a span of four days. That's how i i interviewed her actually i added that in between like the 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 monologue i put to the side Mm -hmm. that was something she didn't know about i interviewed her and i got that information from her but um that was information that that i got at that moment and that i got in the past Mm. you know from the first time i found it i had a good idea of What the situation was and everything that happened before I interviewed her. But I just got more details and more specificity and in terms of even her showing me the the like the New York Post article. And I was like, whoa, when did this happen? So she gave me more details, Mm. especially from the beginning with how he would sneak over to the lower half of the building where all the women stayed. Things like the specific charges that he got, the specific charges she got. And yeah, that's where I got all that in that interview but i already had that sort of good idea of what it all was before
4: i found it interesting how you also included the newspaper article and mm-hmm. all of those comments from the ladies who are like responding back like and the difference in each response where it was like oh yeah no he was great yeah he was great for a time but seeing what he's done and then somebody who was just like no he's the absolute worst and like just seeing the whole range of emotions that came through in that news article to have it all together that you don't only just have your mom's point of view or your point of view but you also have a public kind of point mm-hmm. of view right. because you're able to kind of get that from the situation that you found yourself in right. mm-hmm.
5: i'm so glad i found that mm-hmm. i was looking for just a new york post article my mom didn't even know about this i showed her that and wow. I, she was just like what that was the second link that popped up in the google search resor- results i was like okay let me see if i could find some more so I saw the keywords that it found, it found his name, and it found Scammer, and I was like, oh, should be good. Mm-hmm. Clicked it. Boring article, It's just reiterating what the New York Post said. Then I kind of scrolled down by accident, and I found like 162 comments. It's a lot of comments. A wow. lot. <laughs> and I was, whoa, this is, and I spent a good hour reading everything. That everyone had to say then i was like okay i definitely have to add this but mm-hmm. who am i going to add mm-hmm. whose comment am i going to add so i thought how about comments that are i guess really like, drastically different from each other mm-hmm. you know yeah. one in you get everything from that you could it's a whole yeah. menu when you <laughs> yeah, look through right, the comment right. section yeah I'm, I'm really glad i found that
4: were all 162 comments from people that knew him or was it just like a mix
5: most of them really most of them were from people who knew him he's, wow. he's yeah he he had been all over the country um starting lives with people all over the country
0: oh, wow
5: oh other people like uh, maybe just 10 comments 10 out of those that i saw were just people you know weighing in right, right. from <laughs> what they saw and from you know, people were like well, and people it was like people responding to the other people who knew him they were <laughs> yeah. like whoa how'd you how'd you guys know this guy like what yeah like <laughs> And this was from 2010. The, the comments were from 2010.
2: I was just going to say that um, it was interesting when how you said you put in um, the comments that were so different from each other, and then you wrote, "My mother would find herself somewhere between Penny and Aaron, yeah and then I went back and like reread them, and then I was like, oh okay, and it like kind of summed up how, what your mom was because I was thinking like oh, okay what what would she say about him?" And
5: <sighs> my mom had to go to therapy because of him she you know girls that are just. Disgusted of men, she is beyond that. Mm. Uh, She hasn't been with another guy since. Every time I mention, you know, dating or anything, she's just like, "No, men are disgusting. Men are this. Men are that. You know, they're just no." I'm like, "Wow, this guy really did something." Mm -hmm. (laughs) She, she, yeah, she's been to therapy because of this because she was gaslighted so much. Right. Every time I even try to get out of something, she's just like, "No, no, no, you're doing that thing Daryl does." I'm just like no, I'm not. I'm just trying to like. I mean, I was lying there. I was a kid, you know. I'm a teenager yeah. trying to get out of stuff, and you're like, no, you're doing that thing Daryl does, and I'm like, mom, I'm not your boyfriend. I'm your son, and yeah, <laughs> And and I'm just you know, and so he's had an impact on both our lives, yeah, and long that kind after of after he's, he's now in jail and
1: kind of um partly answers our very last yeah. question. So basically, like you just said. Daryl is inherently dangerous because of the insidious charm and the subsequent damage that he causes to his love-blind victims. And we learn that your mother wasn't the only one. We learn that from all the comments on the newspaper article. And at the end of the story, we learn that your mother still keeps his letters among her important belongings, Mm -hmm. despite everything that he did, everything that she went through and suffered. Now, are you ever worried that she will fall under his spell again or be the victim of another predator like Daryl. I mean, you've kind of already spoken about how your mom hasn't been with another guy since him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's
5: been it's been 17 years. She still hasn't been with another guy. She has her little flings here and there, but sometimes she just manipulates guys herself. So that's another story. But she's never been with another guy since. I, I, I am worried because she always gives me the update on him every now and then he's gonna get out in 2025 and
1: oh, it's actually not that far that's away It's not that far away mm-hmm.
5: just the other day i was kind of going through her stuff because i needed to find a password to something she was practicing because mm-hmm. she's she's not really um fluent in english mm-hmm. and so she she can't really write but she practices when she does in english and since he's an English speaker, he can't speak Spanish at all. Mm-hmm. She practices. I remember when she would practice, and she's doing it again because this is a new notebook. She was telling, like in this, I guess, practice note, she was updating him about, or updating, I don't know who, but I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's him, about what's going on in her life, what uh, you know, oh my God. and I'm just like, oh no, and I don't want to <laughs> confront her about this because. Then she'll know I was going through her stuff and I was trying to find a password for something. (laughs) It'll start a, 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 yeah, I just hope for the best and I will do everything in my power to keep her away from this guy. I'm going to talk to him myself when he does get out. I've been planning to do that. I just want to know more about him and I want to know why he did these things. I'm also going to deliver the message of uh, me not wanting him to be in our lives again. And I know his daughter. My mom knows his older daughter too he has a bunch of daughters with a bunch of different women he doesn't even have any boys which is interesting that's a side note. uh yeah he only has daughters he has a bunch of daughters um and i know two, I, i've heard of the other one and i know one personally we always stray every time i talk to, which isn't that often every time i talk to her we stray away from the topic of him daryl mm. we kind of just you know update each other about our own lives and you know i think she knows the damage that he caused for us she's also kind of neglecting him she my mom tells me that she hasn't been visiting him and she knows this because the older sister told that to my mom so yeah i'm, I'm very very afraid that my mom is going to fall again and mm-hmm. i don't want her to fall it's she's getting older now and she's right. already she has she suffers from a lot of trauma from past issues uh one of them just being him and others, and she just doesn't need any of this at this moment or in the future at all as she's aging.
3: So with that, Dylan, um, you may already answer this, but what would you like listeners to
2: take away from your story today?
5: The only thing you can take away from this story is that people aren't black and white. People have a lot of qualities to them, many good, many bad, sometimes more good than bad, sometimes more bad than good. And it's just it's just a matter of how... You decide to engage with the person based on what you know you shouldn't ever feel guilty for liking the person they were bad in their past or if they are bad because you can't even say you were deceived the person may have good qualities and they're good but they just have under underlying bad qualities and I guess yeah that's the that's the message people aren't black and white people have many qualities to them don't be surprised if person you love the person right next to you you may not know everything about them but when the time comes you'll know and mm-hmm. just don't feel guilty
4: wow yeah well with uh, that thank you again for such an amazing story mm-hmm. and thank you so so much for this great interview and yeah. like giving us some more details about like what was right. going on in this story
2: almost cried
4: a little bit yeah. i know it's like you've got me all emotional here yeah. Yeah. such a pleasure to have you here it's again. such nice. a pleasure Thank Thank you. hopefully you. we'll see you again oh, please. oh yes please. please come back please <laughs> come back I you I please writing. come back
5: <sighs> I, I actually just found a joy in it by taking your class i've been now wanting to write a lot more but i haven't had time and i really want to and i was like when i graduate i'm definitely going to take this time off to you know write a lot more and i'll definitely be here with more stories because oh, I have a lot, a lot of stories. Well, we want folks. to hear them. Yeah. Yeah. You heard it
4: here f- first, folks. Dylan's going to give us 101 <laughs> stories. Yeah. 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 Yes. He'll be back.
3: <laughs> this story is by a new author named Emily Nazi. Emily is a junior at John Jay College majoring in English with a minor in U.S. Latinx Literature and Interdisciplinary Studies. As a Brooklyn native born in a Puerto Rican Arabic household, she spent her childhood in Tennessee. Emily is definitely no stranger to mixing cultures. After graduation, she hopes to continue her education in literature with a doctoral program. In her spare time, you can find her training in the gym, trying to catch up with her homework, taking naps, or taking her dog Luigi on walks. Let's take a listen to Emily's story entitled Written Band-Aids.
6: I awake to the sound of the smoke alarm blaring and the distinct smell of burnt pita drifting through the house. I grab my bear and hold it to my chest. It's familiar fur comforts me as I rush with heavy feet to our kitchen. Daddy? You're standing over the stove before you turn to take a towel and wave it over the alarm that still rings through our house on Forest Ave in Tennessee. Your tall figure snaps in my direction, as if the sound of my voice has startled you. You return to your pita when the alarm has silenced itself. It was burnt all right. Just the way you liked your bread. Just the way I liked it too. Yes, Khabibdi, you tell me. Everything is fine. I'm glad you woke up to the alarm. Now go to sleep. I only nod. I know better than to argue with you. I'm sitting in my bed. Emily, you call me from my room one day. I walk to the screen front porch to see my mother there waiting for me. She sighs. He doesn't want you to be a follower like he is. He wants you to be a leader. We both know what was coming for me. Whenever my brothers or I ever did anything wrong, you would call us from wherever you were and lecture us for hours. I'm not kidding when I say hours. Fear can in hand, you'd go on tangents, trying to relate to us stories from when you were our age. Things that you had done differently. I hesitantly walk onto the patio and stand before you. I know what this is about. I want a keyboard piano. More specifically, I want a keyboard I found off of eBay. You have a crumpled napkin in your hand. Let me tell you about eBay, you tell me. I could sell you this napkin and tell you that it was clean and untouched. When you receive the napkin, what can you do about it? Nothing, you finish before I can even answer. My eyes are trained on the napkin in your hands. There are bloodstains on it, like you have scrapes somewhere on your body, and you were using this crumpled napkin as a makeshift band-aid before it doubled as a prop for this story. You have to be smarter, you tell me. I'm laying on my bed with your papers in my hands. When my mother hands me your letter, at first, I sit there and pay attention to everything, every smudge, every loop. Your handwriting has not changed. Your writing is heavy, like I imagine your heart must have been when you wrote it. You're apologizing to me. It has been five years since the divorce, and it's been almost two years since I've seen you or even heard from you. I'm used to that, though, because it's not the first time you've left me. You're admitting that what you did was wrong. You write that you've missed me in the time that you were gone. Well, not just me. Your letter is addressed to all of your children, but Samir will not read it. It's too late for him. Alex cannot read it. It's too early for him. I am your only audience. You do not tell me why you left, but my mother does. Your dad did a lot of bad stuff, Emily, she says. I woke up in the middle of the night one night to your father doing lines on our counter. He was a follower. He did what his friends gave him without asking questions. You? You did those things? You did. You, the man who would listen to me tell you things you already knew. Like the time we took our trip to Nashville to the Grand Ole Opry Mall to buy new shoes for the upcoming fourth grade year. They're affordable, Dad, I'd answer you, excited to plan my first-day outfit, because the guy who created them wants all boys and girls to be able to have shoes that look nice. I know, Habibti, you would tell me with a smile. Then, why did you make me tell you the story? Because I wanted to hear you tell it. You, the man who danced vicariously down the cement pavement of Six Flags, with your sweaty, hairless head glistening in the summer heat. While all the while, Samir and I begged you to stop. You, who didn't care about the stares of the other families, you do not care how embarrassed you were making your kids. You, the man who I woke up to in my Vanderbilt Children's Hospital bed, who stood there, waiting for me to open my eyes after surgery, who joined my mother in luring me back to sleep with promises of ice cream and pizza, even if it did mean scratching my newly tonsilless throat. The man who, when she didn't have time, bought me the computer program with the video of the young girl with the bushy hair and unruly eyebrows who promised to teach us your language? You, the man who has my name tattooed on your leg next to the sword of Excalibur, your favorite story. You, the man who, alongside your brothers Jenny and Amobehnam, worked sun up to sun down, making sure that the family gas station ran and held our families afloat. You, the man whom my mother would send me to ask if we can go to the Mexican restaurant tonight because he can't say no to you. You. The man who drove the moving truck that separated us 986.6 miles from Tennessee to New York. You, the man who surprised us in New York to spend Christmas with us the year after we moved away. You, the man who came all the way from Jordan to the United States in 1991 in order to find out that especially after 9-11, you were not welcome here, being Arabic and with a last name like that, even though you earned your degree. You, the man who kept his study guide for your naturalization test on top of the cool white marble of our bathroom counter, just beside the toilet bowl, so that you can practice in your downtime. You, the man who let all of Camden, Tennessee, call you Al because Afram was too hard for them to pronounce. You, the man whose name is my middle name, as our culture dictates. You always addressed me as Emily Afram when you were being serious. You, the man who compares keyboards to tissues. You the man who bought me a baby grand with the ivory keys. No eBay keyboards for your daughter. You, the man who burns PETA late into the night and is proud when I wake up to the alarm. You were a bad man? But you have completed your 12-step program. That's why you're writing me. That's why you're trying to make things right. Maybe this was one of your steps, to write to who you've wronged, write to who you've abandoned, to feed your addiction and fix it. But letters... Do not fix everything. They do not fill the void of unanswered calls, the times I waited by the phone for you to call me and tell me that you were coming to visit, when I wanted to tell you about George, my stepfather, and how I hated how much he tried to be you, how he tried to replace you as my father, the time that I broke my elbow, the day that I graduated middle school. Letters do not help pay the bills. They do not stop my mother from struggling. They do not make up for the months and months and months that you disappeared. Your letter does not fix what is too far broken. But still, I want to write you. The thought of no one answering your letter makes me feel no better than you've already made me feel. I want to write you, but... (sighs) I'm sitting in my assigned seat of the Rex Manor Catering Hall. The venue's chairs are cushioned, but the blue of the worn seats clash with the baby pink theme of Nicoletta's Sweet Sixteen. The lights are low, and only the dance floor is illuminated. Standing tall in the middle is Ralph. He doesn't work as much as you. He's home more than you were. Nicoletta sweeps towards him. Her dress is like a cloud. It engulfs him as they bring themselves together. They're swaying to the sound of the music, and he holds her close to his chest. I promise her that I'm going to record their dance, but a tight hold takes over my heart. It forces its way through my throat and forces tears out of my eyes till I can't keep a steady hold of the camera. I lower my phone and step to the back of the wall to compose myself. I have to get used to it because Nicoletta is Daniela and Daniela is Valeria and Valeria is Nicole. They all have what we don't, what you left behind. I'm standing at the altar with Rose in our bridesmaid dresses. I stay careful not to lock my knees because the sapphire blue heels are already straining my calves. Mom walks down the aisle with Papa's arm locked in hers. Her father is always there for her. They're laughing, and Papa is leaning in as he tells another one of his world-famous jokes. All eyes are on my mother during her wedding day, so I take the time to avert my eyes and shed my own tears. The pen is led in my hand. In front of me is my opportunity, a blank canvas to empty myself, to let you know all about how each second you've chosen to leave me stranded has been spent, wondering what I could have done to make you not want to see me, wondering what I had done wrong, wondering what pushed you away. The pen is led in my hand. The tip hovers over the line page. In front of me is the opportunity to welcome you back into my life. It is the opportunity to experience what I've lost in your absence. Still, I hesitate. He's your father. You need your father in your life, my grandmother's voice sounds. I want to listen to her, but I cannot seem to make the words motivate me to describe to you what it feels like to be left by you more than once. If I invite you back into my life, I can be Nicoletta. I can have a sweet 16 dance with you, where you'll tell me how proud you are of me. I will have that at my sweet 16. I'll have that for my wedding. Maybe you can be like my papa. Maybe you can even walk me down the aisle and tell me jokes that make me cry laughing. But if I invite you back into my life, I only open the door for you to leave me again. My pen does not move to meet the page. If I invite you back into my life, I'll once again feel connected to who I am. I'll be proud of where I come from because that's where you come from too. I will no longer have to watch the DVD of the girl with the bushy eyebrows teaching me how to count in Arabic because I'll have you and you'll be there to teach me for yourself. But if I invite you back and you leave me again, how will I face myself knowing I brought this onto myself? If I invite you back into my life You can attend my graduations. You can see how I'm taking your advice. I am being smarter. I am setting goals for myself. I am making a name for myself. But if I invite you back and you disappear again, will you take all the hope I have for myself with you? If you leave again, will I lose that motivation? Because who cares about anything that I do if you're not watching, even from far away? If I invite you back into my life, will you see that I never will be what you were? I will always be a leader. My mom will never wake up in the middle of the night to me doing lines on our coffee table because I learned from your mistakes. If I invite you back into my life, you will learn that love is more than bringing gifts and buying LMB pizza when you fly in from Tennessee. If I invite you back into my life, it would not just be for me. Alex is a little older now. He understands. I can show him what it means to forgive and forget. If I invite you back into my life, distance between us will not be an excuse to go unheard from for days, weeks, months, even years. The pen is let in my hand, but finally, I touch it to the page. With my words, I'm going to fix what you left behind. I write my letter. It takes a couple of weeks for you to find a letter that my uncles have hidden from you, but you respond quickly. Your own brothers thought that keeping you from me was for your benefit. You would not have to worry about me if I did not respond. They thought maybe you would forget your only daughter. They thought that you would focus your energy into the family business. But how could you forget me? You even come all the way to New York. You stay with Aunt Luna and Christine in their small Staten Island apartment. You're really turning yourself around. You're selling shoes in the flea market and to the house of the Haitian women in Queens whose daughters sat on the porch of their home and watched us unload hundreds of shoes from the same truck that you drove up to New York from Tennessee the first time. On the sixth day, I convinced mom to let me stay where you're staying for a night. We spend the entire day together. We even go to the bakery in Bay Ridge, and you let me try bûza, the stretchy Arabic ice cream that never seems to melt. On the trip back to Staten Island, I can't help but think of our future. I cannot help but think about how you told me that you might even move here with Aunt Luna. I cannot help but think that I'm so happy here. Happy that I wrote you. Happy that you're back. Happy that you're clean. Happy that we can have a fresh start. That night, when I'm fast asleep, you come to me as I'm laying on the cushiony black leather couch in Aunt Luna's living room, and you tell me, I have to go back to Tennessee for a couple of days to pick up more shoes. I'll be back in three days. I smile and wave and barely remember saying goodbye. Barely remember seeing you walk out of the door. I barely wonder why you have to leave for shoes at 5 a.m. But I wait. I wait three days, wait for you to walk through the door, wait for you to call me back, but you don't, you never do, you never come back.
2: Wow. Oh my gosh. I thought that it
3: would end differently.
2: I kind of saw it coming, but I was hoping that's not how it would end. I was really hoping. Girl, me too. Oh. <laughs>
3: sure, yeah. Well, thank you for coming here today. Thank you
6: for having me.
3: So Emily, one of the main things that stand out about your story rhetorically is your use of the second person when talking about your father and the things that he did. At first, I thought you used the second person as a way of creating distance between yourself and the character to showcase maybe your current relationship. However, as I read further, using you throughout the piece also made it seem like a letter you never got to give to him. So Emily, when writing this piece, what was your main purpose, or what was the meaning behind using the second-person point of view?
6: This has always been, like, something that's really weighed on me and weighed on my conscience because I feel like it doesn't really um, match kind of the rest of my life. Um, I don't like having strained relationships with people. I always try to be very honest. So um, writing this was a way of um, kind of expelling that for myself in a in a way that I wouldn't be able to do if I were speaking face-to-face because it's always some like a story in a relationship that gets me emotional writing this was very emotional Mm -hmm. so using the second person was a way for me to talk to my father without actually talking to him and being able to say things that I know I wouldn't be able to get out in person almost
3: like therapeutic because it's like you're saying it to him because you're saying you, but you're not saying to everyone else, my father, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Like, right. you're not, mm-hmm. like, drawing this attention, like, everyone look at my dad and how messed up he was or how kind he was sometimes. You're, mm-hmm. It's like you are directly speaking to your dad. Right. And that's really, like, really apparent. In your piece, we see that moment where you weigh the pros and cons of writing to your dad and opening the door to have him back in your life as you sit and stare at the paper in front of you with what you describe as pen weighing like lead. This piece is full of your recollection of kind of moments with your father, like the burnt pita, and also harder memories like the impact of his leaving. You're constantly weighing the good and the hurtful. As someone who I'm sure is still dealing with the imprint of your father has made on your life, does the good ever outweigh the bad or is the memory of this parent who left always kind of tainted for you? What's the process been like to heal and has writing your story
6: out in this way helped at all? Writing the story was definitely a healing moment for me because it was I was able to like I said, expel a lot of the emotion that had been kind of pent up inside. Um, I do still weigh the pros and cons because I know a way to contact my father. And actually he's been contacting me more often, just to get a little bit more backstory. Um, but it's always something that I have like hesitation for. Like I'm, I wanna reach out for him because he's my father, but it's also, I know what's happened. I know his track record. So it's always um that back and forth. This like that back and forth that I wrote is still something real that's going on inside me, like almost every day.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's like it's a risk. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a real risk to open yourself up for that hurt again right. because you've been through it, you know what's going to happen if he doesn't show up, if he doesn't come and if he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain of the relationship, because the relationship isn't just one sided. Right. It takes both of you to make the relationship and you can't always be the one opening yourself up. So that's, uh, uh, there's, yeah. Like reading your story. It's just, uh, yeah. So, um, Emily, you may have already answered this question, but what would you like listeners to take away from your story?
6: That's a loaded question. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> um, I want them to f- like know forgiveness and, forgiveness isn't always something that's like reciprocated. It's not always something that's gonna have a positive outcome. And that's just life. So it's important to know that there are risks that come with your decisions. But when it comes down to it, I really don't regret reaching out to my dad that time, even though it was really painful for me, especially in the end, especially now going through what I'm going through. Um, But I think it's just important to reflect reality. Like relationships between parents are always idealized they're always portrayed in specific ways in movies there's always that happy ending but like that's really not the truth well with that um thank you for coming
3: on today thank you for letting us talk to you more about your story and thank you thank you for sharing
6: Oh, thank you for having me guys i really do appreciate it
4: That concludes our sixth episode of the fourth season. Fool me twice? We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about.
1: You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get more behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and...
2: Good night!